So excited to have Dr. Katie Siangsakon on the show today to really dive into sleep, a topic that we've batted around that we know is super important, but have never really delved into the actual screening and sleep hygiene tactics that you all need as clinicians and that for those patients who are listening, you all need as strategies to feel better. This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Pain Reframe. So what you're going to hear in, in this episode today is us diving into exactly those topics, and there could not be a better person to do so with. So go ahead, strap in. going to be a half-hour show talking about all things sleep, all things screening, all things recovery. Hope you enjoy. Without further ado, Dr. Katie Siangsakon. Katie, so awesome to have you here. Do you mind kind of getting everyone oriented to where you are and literally geographically where you are and then kind of what your, what your life day-to-day professionally looks like? And we'll jump in from there. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks, first of all, for having me on your program. I'm really excited to be here and talk about sleep and its relationship with pain. So I am associate professor in physical therapy and rehabilitation science at the University of Kansas Medical Center. So kind of smack dab in the middle of the country. I do a lot of research in sleep. I became interested in sleep, both from kind of my clinical practice when I was a new grad. And then after I got my PhD, I dug more into it. So that's a lot of what I do is research about how to help people sleep better. And then I also teach in our physical therapy program. I teach in the neuro curriculum quite a bit. And we also have a PhD program. And so I uh, mentor some of those students as well. Awesome. So I guess, Katie, one great spot to start with with the nature of our show, really talking about the pain epidemic that we have kind of raging through not only our country, but so many areas of the globe. Can you give some background on why sleep is important in the world of discussing persistent pain? Kind of the connection there, if it exists, and if so, maybe even delving a bit into why it exists. And then we can jump in and unpack that a bit and talk about some solutions. I, I think it's one of those things that people probably intuitively realize that sleep and pain are very interconnected. And I, and I think people kind of know that, you know, and I think as a, as a clinician, I was always like, oh, well, people are in pain. It kind of makes sense that people are going to have sleep issues. You know, you're in pain, it makes it difficult to sleep. But I think what I didn't really realize was just how much on the flip side, if you're not sleeping well, how that actually can set you up to be more likely to develop chronic pain conditions. And so it's, you know, kind of what comes first, the, kid, the chicken or the egg. Clinicians can really focus not only on the pain component, but also realize that sleep really is a critical piece of that pain component. And without addressing the sleep issues, you know, you're really missing kind of a big underlying thing that could be potentially driving those those painful conditions. Katie, if you wouldn't mind elaborating a little bit on the, the neuroscience of why the a sleep disruption creates or makes you either more susceptible to persistent pain or amplifies a current pain condition. You know, there's some overlap in the neural structures, like in the brainstem region, um, the areas that control the descending pain modulatory systems, but also... The, the areas that control um, sleep, um, there's some relationship as far as the overlap and both in the anatomy where they're located, but then also just the physiology. You know, so there definitely is some overlap between those different regions. There's quite a bit we don't know about the mechanism of, you know, if you're not sleeping well, how does that really lead to the higher risk of having persistent pain or painful conditions? There's a great review by Finnan um, and colleagues in 2013 that did a really cool review um, of a lot of different studies that were out there, believe that it really is there's an impairment of those descending pain pathways that seem to be disrupted when you're not sleeping well, that it doesn't seem to be so much the the ascending sensory pathways that are amplified, but really there's a, the loss of 
those descending pain modulatory system that seem to be what basically kind of go in overdrive and can lead to that persistent pain situation. You know, as you're talking, it it gets me curious to, you know, maybe on a more um, behavioral aspect, you know, we've all, or most of us have had bad nights or I've had young children and, and our ability to process and for lack of a better word, we're short, we're just not in as good a space when we're sleep deprived and wondering what the relationship is almost from that moment of the day beginning and the behavioral aspects of maybe creating a a negative response to who you are, you know, from the moment you kind of get up because you're just not, you're not firing on all cylinders. There's a lot of different things that happen when you're sleeping, but then also that don't occur properly when you're not sleeping well. I mean, your, your sleep is really critical for pretty much function of all your different body systems, be it from your cognitive system to your, you know, depression, to anxiety, to immune system, to your digestive system, your endocrine system, metabolism, and you, you name it, sleep is critical for that. So when you're not sleeping well, particularly on an ongoing basis, you know, all those different systems get out of whack. If you're doing that repeatedly day after day or night after night, not sleeping well, you know, it really can lead to a lot of different health consequences. Um, and persistent pain is one of those things. But there is, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, if you don't sleep well, and it can only be one night, but particularly if, if you have multiple nights where you're not sleeping well, that you have um, more more frequent and more intense um, spontaneous pain. You also have lower pain thresholds. You have increased pain sensitivity. There's been some neat studies that have looked at, does it how, how long does it take to recover even from not sleeping well? And that it can actually take some time for those systems to place. Sleep really plays an important role in all those different systems and pain just being one of those things. And yet, have you all checked on someone with persistent pain or patients coming in persistent pain, whether it be to primary care, especially clinics, what do you think the prevalence of, you know, starting there is? Meaning, you know, what is your your current sleep hygiene, where you're at? Do you think that's normal discussion out there in the clinical world? I would suspect not. I would. I hope that I'm wrong, though. Um, you know, I, I hope that that is a conversation that is that people in persistent pain are having with their healthcare provider, be it their physician or their physical therapist or whatever healthcare providers that they're seeing. What my fear is is that uh, because there's often you know other issues that the individual may be there to talk with their their healthcare provider about. That, and I also think, you know, a lot of times people think, oh, I'm not sleeping well. Of course I'm not. I'm in pain. That they may not bring that forward as something that's going on with them. So my concern and my suspicion is that the sleep issues are oftentimes being overlooked or not being as dressed um, as readily as perhaps they, they need to be. But I certainly, you know, by doing podcasts like this, I certainly hope to get the word out there to encourage patients not only to, to talk to their healthcare provider if they are having sleep issues, but also for those healthcare providers to be asking about, um, you know, some different screening questions to get at, you know, sleep duration and sleep quality. But then also another thing to think about is um, underlying sleep disorders. Um, We know that adults are particularly with persistent pain or at high risk for insomnia, but then sleep apnea and restless leg syndrome are often underdiagnosed just in the general population. So of course, if you're in persistent pain and then you have an undiagnosed sleep disorder, so you're not sleeping well, you know, you can see where that would perpetuate or potentially um, worsen those that pain condition. Yeah, Katie, I fell squarely into the bucket you were talking about earlier in that for the first better part of a decade of my career, 
I figured folks weren't sleeping well because they were hurting. Like that just made sense to me. Like, well, their back is killing them. They would often mm-hmm. say when I, when I turn in bed, it hurts and it wakes me up. So I constantly attributed someone's poor sleep to their musculoskeletal pain, not the other way around. And now since interacting, you know, with you in APHBT and then with Tim and I over on this side in industrial health here in Northern Colorado, we're trying to figure out you know, how to make folks more robust, more resilient, you know, help to prevent that pain. So they never right. even go in that direction. So I guess the big question I have, I guess there's two of them. I know the first one's going to be Jeff, there's a lot of variants, but if, if our listeners are on here and they want to take this seriously, we're about to talk about some solutions here in a minute. What is the goal? So, so what is considered adequate sleep? How many nights of disrupted sleep can someone generally tolerate? Because I mean, my, my understanding in the literature is that just weekend recovery doesn't get the job done. Like if you sleep poorly during the week. Right. Sleep, right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, mean, I guess I'm curious, Katie, if you can unpack a bit more what as practitioners, if we appreciate this relationship, if we actually want to target the sleep up front, what is maybe our goal? Do we ask questions like, hey, do you feel rested? Are there certain questions we can ask to give us insight for any given person if they're getting adequate rest? The American Academy of Sleep Medicine recommends seven or more hours of sleep each night for an adult in order to produce adequate health. And so that's a good place to start, um, you know, to ask, you know, how many hours of sleep do you typically get each night? Because that does tell you a little bit, you know, if they're, if they're only sleeping five hours, then, you know, obviously that's not ideal for optimal health. Um, at the same time, though, you know, if they're sleeping 9, 10, 11 hours, you know, I also am starting to think in my head, well, what else is going on that's making them need that much sleep? Now, yes, there is a lot of um, variability as far as actual need. You know, some people need more sleep, some people need less sleep, and that's just, you know, who you are. That's a good place to start. Um, but I think what is also really important to think about is quality doesn't necessarily equal quantity, or quantity doesn't necessarily equal quality. So you definitely have to delve into, you know, how are you feeling when you wake up? You know, so say you slept for seven hours or eight hours at night. How did you feel when you woke up? You know, did you feel well rested? Did you not? How would you rate your quality of sleep? You know, if somebody is saying, oh, I get seven hours of sleep each night. My sleep quality is very good. You know, then that's somebody that I'm not going to be worried too much about as far as their sleep quality. But if, you know, they're saying, oh, I sleep for seven or eight hours, but gosh, my sleep quality is terrible. Then I definitely want to dig more into that and, you know, find out, you know, is there, is there, is there a condition, underlying condition that's contributing to that poor sleep quality? Or do they potentially have an underlying sleep disorder? Which, again, I feel like that's something that could be very easily missed in that clinical setting when there's so many other things that oftentimes needs to be talked about. And so I like to, to look at risk for sleep apnea because that often goes underdiagnosed and also it's restless leg syndrome because those are typically pretty easy to, you know, at least screen for those sleep disorders in the adult population. So that's, that's usually where I like to start. Beautiful. So Katie, once, once maybe we have that on the board, once you're picking up enough things in your screening, you're like, you know what, we should devote some, some time specifically to, to this variable. Where do you start? Where should clinicians start when, when they realize someone's sleep hygiene is simply not where it needs to be? Are there certain things you have found, whether that's questionnaires, information, et cetera, resources, where do we get rolling? So something that I like to do with every patient is after I kind of screen them for how much sleep are they getting? What is their sleep quality? Um, if I am suspecting a sleep disorder, then I will do like the stop bang questionnaire is a great one to look at risk for sleep apnea. There's a restless leg question that can be asked pretty easy to get at at the risk of sleep, uh, restless leg syndrome. But then I like to provide sleep hygiene education to all patients. You know, and again, how much you give them will depend on their sleep quantity and most importantly, their sleep quality. Um, you know, just like you wouldn't tell you know everybody to go exercise. Oh, you need to exercise. Go do that. You, know, you really have to tailor those sleep hygiene recommendations to your client. 
So you really have to understand what's going on with them so you can tailor those things. For kind of the, the two really big things about promoting good sleep hygiene, one of the biggest one is to have a sleep schedule. So to make sure that you're going to bed and waking up at the same, same time every day, that really helps to set that natural circadian rhythm um, is one key piece. The other big thing is called stimulus control. And that is the concept of using the bed for sleep and sex only. So everything else should be done outside of the bed and preferably even outside of the bedroom. You know, and then there are some other sleep hygiene um, things that we can talk about as well. But I kind of want to focus on those two because those are oftentimes what I have found with the clients that I work with to be the two, the two really big things. And I've also I've done some training with cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And so I do a research study using CBTI. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, all clinicians go out and, you know, be trained in doing CBTI. Uh, but two of the big components is a regular sleep schedule and that concept of stimulus control. What I also like to talk to people about is kind of the model of insomnia, you know, kind of show them a graph that's called Spielman's 3P model of insomnia. Because I think that really makes a lot of sense to people. The basic concept is, you know, everybody has kind of these pre-morbid conditions, you know, that, that make you you. So you, you may have a genetic predisposition to insomnia or poor sleep or whatever other sleep disorder. Um, you may have a, an extra sensitive nervous system, you know, whatever makes you you, but it's not so severe that it's going to, you know, give you insomnia. And then there's some sort of a perpetuating event, be it, you know, a pain condition that is onset, you have an increase in your pain condition, you lose your job, you know, you have a fight with your spouse, whatever that is, that perpetuating condition can then put you over the, that threshold for developing insomnia. But what people often do is they then develop these perpetuating factors. So they start changing their sleep schedule. They start going to bed earlier. They start sleeping in in the morning or they start napping in the afternoon um, or they start hanging out in bed, you know, watching TV. You know, so they start doing these behaviors that really is what then perpetuates that insomnia condition. So even though that precipitating event has either, you know, gone away or at least reduced, now it's really those behaviors that are, again, perpetuating the insomnia. So that's a lot what CBTI focuses on is those behaviors by doing some of the sleep hygiene techniques, again, particularly focusing on regular schedule, stimulus control, and there's some other things that we can educate patients about as far as kind of, you know, ways to promote that good sleep health. But people really get that, you know, if you kind of talk about that model um, and those behaviors that perpetuating insomnia, people, you, you start to see people like nodding their heads and like, oh yeah, I do that. You know, I, oh yeah, I slept bad, so I went to bed. I went to bed early the next night or, oh, I slept in really late. And then, of course, I couldn't fall asleep the next day or I slept terribly. And then I took a long nap. You know, so people really, it kind of resonates, I've found. Well, wow, that's really helpful, Katie. I really like that idea of keep it simple in terms of there's two factors you really need to establish for all of us. You know, it's of just good sleep hygiene, that concept of the same time each night and to literally get out of the distractions from the from the bedroom uh, and the bed you know essentially those two things right and if we take it a step further so and i i have some thoughts but i'm curious what you think on the for instance my main problem is that you know i'm doing what you're saying katie i'm going to bed at the same time and my phone is no longer anywhere near there. The TV doesn't go on, but, you know, I'm still waking up at two in the morning and, you know, I just can't, you know, I, I toss and turn for an hour and a half before I ever get back to sleep. Mm, How would you approach yeah. that? So again, the, the concept of stimulus control for sticking with that, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you're not able to fall back to sleep, then ideally you get out of the bedroom. Um, you get out of the bed, you get out of the bedroom, 
going to the living room, doing something relaxing um, until you do feel sleepy. You know, that generally makes people more tired <laughs> initially, right? But the good thing about that is that then increases your sleep drive. So you can't see my hands doing the <laughs> what the sleep drive would look like. But, um, you know, when you're really ideally, you want to be tired when you're getting ready to fall asleep at night. And that that gets you into a deeper stage of sleep, uh, which is more likely to make you fall asleep faster and then also stay asleep. What I also focus on um, for, for my clients is not only that, that concept of stimulus control, but then um, relaxation techniques, I think, are also critical, particularly for people with persistent pain who may wake up in the middle of the night and have difficulty falling back to sleep. The kind of the three that I like to focus on with my clients um, are diaphragmatic breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, and then mindfulness. And those are the three that I've had a lot of success with. And, you know, some one of those resonates with some people and one resonates with, with others. And some people find a way of kind of, you know, squashing them into kind of one relaxation technique. But I think the trick is to find something or some things that work for you uh, that both can uh, be part of your relaxing bedtime routine before you go to bed, um, you know, so that way your brain's thinking, okay, part of my bedtime routine, it's time to relax because what comes next then is the bed and sleep. Um, you know, same thing then in the middle of the night if you wake up is trying those relaxa relaxation techniques in the hopes that you're able to fall asleep quicker. I think the other thing to think about is, um, you know, medications um, and talking with your physician as far as the timing of medications to help enable, you know, that, that they are lasting long enough so that you're able to sleep um, is another thing to think about. Yeah, I like how you said about the relaxation components. One of the things I've it just seems to it's easy and to remember is just the breathing rather than diaphragmatic, but the four, seven, eight concept of that, you know, uh -huh. really counting, yeah, that four in, seven hold, and that slow eight exhalation that's, you know, auditory. Exactly. I don't know what the data shows on it, but I mean, I, the number of patients that come back say, man, that trick has been a game changer uh, when I wake up at night. And again, simple strategies sometimes can have profound uh, effects on on our on our clients. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, I usually combine that four, seven, eight breathing with that diaphragmatic breathing. And you know, it is it is amazing on how um, that, you know that that deep breath and that focusing on your breath. You know, it really for, for a lot of people can be profoundly relaxing. Yeah, I've had people have success with some different things and. I think what I usually encourage people is, you know, these may be the kind of the three that I like to use, um, you know, but there may be something else that works better for you. You know, maybe it's yoga, maybe it's Tai Chi, maybe it's other mindful movements. You know, I think it really is finding something that works for you and then being consistent with it. You know, as I hear you talk, I also wonder, you know, I mean, it's a big picture question to throw to you, though, is, I mean, as we look at all these chronic diseases that are prevalence is increasing and things like anxiety, depression, persistent pain, irritable bowel syndrome, a lot of these conditions. Are we really in a time of life where we're actually looking at symptoms that we're labeling a disease when the underlying causes may be very, very similar across those conditions, such as sleep disruption. I think that is an, an excellent point. And I think that that's something that I, I hope the listeners really do take hold of is that, yeah, I mean, sleep disorders and, and poor sleep quality has been associated with so many chronic conditions. Because again, sleep is so critical for the proper function of your body and all those different body systems. So when you're not sleeping well, those systems aren't, aren't functioning well. 
which then we know that people who are in a, a chronic state of sleep deprivation, they are, and I'm not talking like, you know, it has to be, you're not sleeping at all. I'm talking about, you know, five to six hours of sleep each night on a regular basis, which, you know, a lot of adults unfortunately fall into. Um, you're putting your, your yourself at a much higher risk for obesity, for diabetes. We know that as well for anxiety, depression. There's some really cool work coming out right now that while you sleep, it helps to flush out the beta amyloid that accumulates during the day. And so if you're not getting into that deep restorative sleep, you're not flushing out the beta amyloid that's accumulated. You're actually at a higher risk for developing Alzheimer's and dementia as well. So I completely agree. And then of course, then the persistent pain issue as well. You know, we know that people who have poor sleep quality are at a much higher risk of developing persistent pain conditions five, 10, 15 years down the road. That's what I feel very passionate about is, you know, telling different patients and um, healthcare providers just how critical sleep is really is something that we all need to kind of own and recognize that it's something that that can be addressed um, for the most part. We need to be screening people. We need to be uh, making sure they get referred to the, the correct physician that they need for their testing because, gosh, it really, I think it is setting people up for these long-term chronic conditions. Katie, that's such a great dialogue, and it falls right into the theme that we've had you know, numerous episodes throughout the show of putting the right interventions up front. You know, we've talked to so many neurosur- you know, different neurosurgeons and ER docs, and a lot of them have said, the way we've revolutionized our practice is we put the right things up front. So if somebody has chronic, what could be looking like nerve-related back pain, et cetera, doing the neurological interventions, like you said, the CBT, the, the mindfulness, doing those things up front, the graded exposure, all of a sudden when it shakes out, a dramatically small percentage of those people that could have been maybe surgical candidates or candidates for addictive medication, all of a sudden they don't need anything. Because you put the right things up front. I, right. look, I look at sleep the same way. And I've been following you now on Twitter. I've been learning so much that what if we simply put that up front and said, hey, is sleep a major issue for you? Right? Are you are you sleeping well? Imagine if we targeted that first. How many, like Tim was saying, how many other things we'd stop chasing? <laughs> the IBS, the depression. Right. The, if we as clinicians can reorganize the way we engage and put these big hitters up front, we're going to wind up having a lot less things to target down on the other side. I completely agree. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about it is that, you know, because I, as a new grad, as a clinician, you know, I won't date myself, but many years ago now, you know, when I came out as a new grad, I had so many of my patients who had sleep issues and I felt completely ill-equipped with, you know, what to do with them. And, you know, we talk about positioning and things like that to sleep. And obviously, you know, I was addressing their musculoskeletal issue or their neurologic issue, but I wasn't really addressing their sleep issue. And I certainly wasn't asking them about how much sleep they were getting or their quality of sleep. And I wasn't screening them for sleep disorders. So I really feel like, you know, and I'll speak as a, as a physical therapist, but I would say this for other healthcare providers too. I mean, we have such a, a unique opportunity where we're working with these individuals who they come in for some sort of an acute onset of whatever it is, be it a neurologic condition or a musculoskeletal condition, you know, what if when they have that, you know, that precipitating event, I'll call it that, you know, what if we as that healthcare provider was, could say, you know, you may have some sleep disruptions because of this, but here are some things that you could think about to, to keep promoting your sleep health um, and help prevent those perpetuating, you know, factors and behavioral issues from developing. You know, I, I think, you know, gosh, what if, what if we could prevent some of these sleep issues from developing, prevent some of these chronic conditions from developing and, you know, improve our outcomes? I think, it, I think there's such great potential for that. And I think the cool thing about this show, if it's taught me anything, it's that what if is turning into how about now? 
for a lot of people because we're getting so many providers calling saying, look, this is a better way to do it. We're, we're going to start doing things differently in our clinic like yesterday, <laughs> you know, and we're hearing some amazing stories and how that's changed folks' lives. Well, Katie, I, I don't want to keep you all day, but I do want you here in the last couple of minutes. If people aren't following you on Twitter and following you on social media, I think they're really missing out. Can you, for clinicians who want to learn more about sleep and promoting it and screening for it, can you give some information, maybe your Twitter handles, whatever social media you're comfortable sharing, and then any other resources, websites, anywhere they can track your work, learn more and be better. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely love engaging with people about sleep, but you can tell I get a little, I get a little jazzed out up about it and kind of geeked out about it. And especially when people are interested in talking about sleep. So please do connect with me on Twitter. I'm at Katie sleep PT. Um, you're welcome to email me. Um, it's C as in Catherine with a C. Um, Siang Sukhan is my last name at KUMC.edu. My um, collaborators, we also wrote a perspective paper that was published in a physical therapy journal called Sleep Health Promotion, Practical Information for Physical Therapists. It was a labor of love um, that we, we wrote that and we really wanted it to be a resource for, cl- for clinicians um, where we really talk about the, the benefits of sleep and promoting sleep health. We talk about some of those screening tools that could be used. We talk about implementing sleep hygiene education. We, we wrote it with the intention of people using it. So we hope that people find that as a useful resource as well. Um, as far as websites and National Sleep Foundation is a great resource, just you know, general things about sleep, also about different sleep disorders, promoting sleep health. Wonderful. Well, Katie, thank you so much for your time and thanks for everything you're doing. You're one of those people that's, that's shifting our perspective and really helping us, I think, do less harm and do more good. So really appreciate your time and all your work. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It was a lot of fun to talk with you both. Well, thanks so much, Katie. Have a most excellent rest of the day. Wow, what a great show. I'm left very excited and ready to get back into clinic because, again, pearls were dropped there. I really appreciate Dr. Katie Siangsakong coming on as an expert and really giving us some tools that we can have action on today. So one of the key things just to remember is we probably need to be asking all folks coming in to see us, no matter what the condition, a very basic screen of what is their current sleep hygiene? Are they getting what would be considered normal sleep hours? And two, are they going to bed generally regularly at the same time and waking at the same time? If we identify those that are having some sleep disruption, try to find out if what those triggers might be. And there's some basic strategies that were presented that can help folks, particularly making sure that the areas we sleep are really designed for that. Uh, I love the comment, bed is for sex and sleep, and that we get rid of all other distractions in the room, TVs, devices, etc. that really that is an area of sanctuary where we recover and we sleep. And the other thing I thought was really interesting was some key factors if people are disrupted during the night, key strategies that you can do that provide that patients may be able to put to work that night in and getting back to sleep through some breathing strategies and mindfulness type of approaches. So once again, a great, great episode. I hope it helps each of you out there that's listening and that if you like what you're hearing, please follow us on social media and provide some input to what's going on here. And also look at ispinstitute.com, the International Spine and Pain Institute, which has some awesome programming on pain and really educating and teaching people about pain. So thanks again, and each of you all have a great rest of the week. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.